Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And today I am joined by the founder and executive director of Live for USA. That is Pastor Michael McBride. Welcome, Pastor Mike. Whoa, man. Great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. I'm very, very glad to have you here because there are a lot of conversations going on right now as there is almost this faux idea of a crime spike and people are kind of taking a tough on crime stance. But as I understand it, that's not the answer, right? Not only is it not the answer, history has proven to us why it is a horrendous response. Uh, We have seen uh, the, the, the response of this country to the worst conditions of black folks living in urban America, brown folks living in urban America, poor folks living in urban America to be punitive at best with no scaled up response for healing. And so over the last five to six years, we have seen the lowest expressions and the lowest numbers of violence in our country because of the work of public health interventions. And we need elected officials, particularly those who claim to care about public safety in our communities, not to be seduced by a 1990s tough on crime approach that literally destroyed our communities just as much as the violence did. Now, I definitely know as well that the total tough on crime stance in the 90s definitely destroyed our communities. And what they did to a certain extent was give fodder for prison privatization, as well as creating the system that our government wants to uphold. So I guess in terms of seeing those underhanded really goals going on when it comes to government, state, local level, even the federal level in terms of where they want their funding to go and who they want to incarcerate. I guess what is kind of your approach for essentially undermining that? So I, I try to explain it with you know really easy to understand examples. If you have a toothache, you don't pull out all the teeth in your mouth because you have one toothache. You actually have a targeted response to the tooth that is causing you the most challenges. Similarly, we know because of all the data over the last decade or so that less than 1%, sometimes it's less than half of 1% of the population of your city is driving almost 60% of the gun related shootings and homicides. So our focus should be on the less than 1% of our population that is caught in violent cycles and conflicts. We should use public health approaches. We should hire those who used to be involved in that life. We should scale up guaranteed basic income for these individuals. We should offer healing and we should offer trauma response care for them. But what we should not do is use violence to try and solve violence. We ought to use this growing industry called community violence interventions to scale up these strategies, focus on the 1%. We have found in cities when we've done this, we have seen a 25, 30, sometimes 40% reduction in gun-related shootings and homicides without growing the population of prisons and racial profiling and police shootings. This is the response. The Biden administration knows it's the response. That's why they put $5 billion in the Build Back Better Act to scale this up. We need mayors and governors, city councils and county supervisors to put this money in the community on the ground, force these partnerships and let's save lives without growing the prison industrial complex. Oh, absolutely, I completely agree. Uh, That is something we definitely need to kind of end this whole carceral state and for that to be the first and almost only answer at times. My bigger concern is those um, leaders out there who want to feed the carceral state, who want to incarcerate a segment of us to keep up whether uh, it's class, race, whatever the biases are. And so I don't necessarily know how to reach them. 
Uh, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, Dr. King, you know, in honor of his uh, birthday that we all will be celebrating uh, over the weekend and this week, he says that the greatest impediment, the stumbling block to racial justice in this country is not the Ku Klux Klan, it's the white moderates. We have to figure out how do we ensure that so-called progressives, uh, now white and black, uh, do not suffer from a, a uh, dearth of an imagination. Many of them are playing politics with public safety. They know that if they need to score political points, if they need to seem like they're being responsive, they're gonna call for more cops. They're gonna increase the police budgets. How can you increase the police budgets less than one year or two years uh, you know, after we all filled the streets and said that we were gonna reimagine public safety? We must organize, uh, we must put pressure, and we must scale up the strategies that we know work. We must confront our elected officials in these cities and counties where our communities are disproportionately impacted by gun violence. We must put these strategies in front of them and then demand that they implement them. Uh, the Live Free campaign along with the Black Brown Peace Consortium and our fun peace comrades all across the country. We are putting this pressure on elected officials. We are not allowing them to use their limited imagination to continue to use tough on crime tactics when we know public health strategies with the federal and state and local resources can literally save lives. It's up to us to organize and push them to do it. Yes, and pushing them is so incredibly important. And you're absolutely right about these progressive leaders out there who are essentially claiming that they're gonna help enforce and make change in one hand. And then they're out in these streets essentially announcing new proposals, for example, Governor Gavin Newsom just announced the whole um, effort to locate hundreds of millions of dollars really in grants to crack down on organized retail theft that they're claiming is going on right now in California. And to really help local law enforcement combat this and prosecute these accused criminals. Yet uh, it's been really, I guess, really shared widely that there's not really a spike and retail theft. And this isn't something that's necessarily going on, but it's clearly kind of a sentiment in order for law enforcement to feel like they still have something to do. Is that uh, accurate? We know, and many of us did some uh, actions. We call them actions. We call them public um, kind of uh, responses to the uh, retailers associations. Folks like Target, folks like Lucky's, folks like Safeway, who were actually against the kind of um, decarceration strategies we want at the state level. They were putting out all these fake and false numbers and ads trying to scare the voter to not vote for a decarceration movement in California. We know these individuals are using false data and scare tactics to say that there is a crime boom, when in reality, we, we need to have a conversation about desperation. Why is it that in this moment, people are experiencing such desperation People are experiencing such hunger for food, housing, shelter, clothes, that they may find themselves resorting to certain kinds of uh, easy to uh, accomplish petty thefts. We ought to ask ourselves why in the richest state in the country, one could argue that our economy in California is bigger than many other countries across the world. Why is it that we're on one hand saying we're gonna scale up basic income strategies like my friend Michael Tubbs is helping the governor to do, but then on the other hand, play footsie with uh, the police and these retailers that are trying to criminalize our people. You can't have it both ways. Let's go all in for peacemaking, all in for opportunity, all in for healing, 
all in for public health responses to any sorts of crimes and activity that are causing folks to feel unsafe. That is the solution that we need progressives, progressive governors, progressive mayors, progressive city council members to champion and not fall into a tough on crime narrative, trying to see who can be more tough than the Republicans. I say forget the Republicans. We know they're autocrats, authoritarians, racists and white supremacists. Let's compete with ourselves and see who can be the most progressive at saving lives while keeping our community safe. Yes, that is something that I think a lot of us definitely want as progressives. And having leadership that also believes in that and is willing to put resources and truly implement the strategies that are necessary to change that, I'm a huge fan. And so I love the fact that you are working hard at this as the executive director of Live Free USA. Is there anything else that you are doing as well that you really hope takes off in 2022? Absolutely. You know, what? one thing that we know for sure is that there is an intersectional nature of our work. That while we may be focusing a lot of our attention on the issue related to gun violence, we also have to focus on continuing to address criminal justice reform, continuing to repeal and abolish the death penalty in this state. Why are we still even contemplating state executions in our state or in any state in this union? We have to continue to fight against the voter suppression tactics that are cropping up all across this country. So we have a, a, a lot of issues that all braid together to ensure that human rights can be extended to the most vulnerable in this country. So the Live Free USA Network has easily you know, several dozen organizations in over 40 cities across the country that are organizing people of faith, people with criminal convictions, families that are directly impacted by gun violence, by the criminal justice system, We're organizing churches, neighborhood groups, street organizations, Pookie, Ray Ray, even some law enforcement folks are rocking with us. Why? Because we know that the best solution to the worst conditions of our community is for us to create a belonging sense, a network of belonging, and a sense that we are all belonging to one another. Dr. King called it the beloved community. That's what the Live Free work is all about. That's excellent. And it sounds like you were out there doing good work, bringing people in and making sure they feel and know that they belong and making meaningful change. And so if there are individuals out there who want to get involved, who want to uplift, who want to partner or um, join Live for USA, I guess what is the best way that they could go about doing that? Are there marches? Are there different events? Yeah, you, you're going to see a Live Free event coming to a city near you for sure. Uh, for the next several months, there are going to be some amazing partnerships that we're going to roll out. If you want to be active and connected with us, visit our website, livefreeusa.org, and you can sign up for all of our mailing uh, materials. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow us on Instagram. Uh, we are building a movement. It is an open uh, source movement, meaning we want everybody who wants to rock and get down. Uh, just got to love the streets. You got to love folks in the neighborhoods. Uh, we are literally combating combating anti-black racism, all the forms of human hierarchy. Uh, come on and let's be a part of this movement. Let's save a lot of lives, but more importantly, uh, let's build the beloved community, it's time. Yes, it is indeed time in honor of Dr. King, as well as all of the other movers and shakers out there looking to break down racial bias, class bias, all of these things that hold us back. It's such a powerful thing. And so we very, very much appreciate all the work that you are doing as the founder, executive director of Lift for USA, as well as largely just an individual lifting up the message. If people are looking to follow you on social media, where can they find you? You can follow me at I'm Pastor Mike underscore. Uh, I'm Pastor Mike underscore. And uh, yeah, man, it'd be great for you to follow us and, 
and uh, be a part of the movement. We really, really believe that there's room at the table for everybody. Excellent, thank you so much for joining us. Pastor Michael McBride, founder and executive director of Live Free USA. Right on, thank you. Welcome back to the conversation. It is Adrian Lawrence, and now I'm gonna essentially take you to school. We've got Kelly Fisher, a kindergarten teacher from Arizona, and Anthony Barnes, a middle school special ed teacher out in Michigan. And they are gonna talk to us a bit about essentially the pandemic's impact when it comes to schooling and teaching. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely, thanks for having us. Yes, um, you know, it's really been leading headlines, these conversations on the shortages when it comes to labor as far as teachers go in a lot of schools across the nation. So uh, Kelly, I'll pitch it to you first. Can you give us an idea of what is really going on here? Uh, I will tell you that in my school district, we had 12 classrooms go virtual this week uh, because we had so many cases. And we are even asking teachers who are home with COVID and might have mild symptoms to actually teach from home because we don't have enough substitutes to cover classes. Uh, we are on a daily schedule and rotation of covering each other's classes when someone is out sick. Um, there are weeks where teachers get no prep period because they're covering for other teachers. And we are at the point where we are you know, begging parents to get certified to come in and substitute for us right now. Wow, and are you seeing a very similar response out there in Michigan? Absolutely, I mean, before the pandemic hit, there was already a shortage of teachers in Michigan. And if you were thinking about not coming into the field of education or retiring or just leaving, the pandemic really just kind of forced your hand to push you out. Similar to what Kelly was saying, we are subbing regularly, we have a shortage of subs. Recently, we had our upper administration, our central office staff coming in and subbing in our buildings. And we are asking everyone, you know, if, if, you, if you've ever thought about subbing or if you're kind of curious about what's really going on in schools, so then come and sub. But it's more than just the, the teachers who are short staffed, we're short kitchen staff, we're short bus drivers, paraprofessionals. You name it, all the essential staff to really educate our children, we're short. We need all hands on deck right now. Wow, and as I understand that America's public schools were really struggling to stay open with staffing troubles, even to some extent before this latest surge hit. And also this first week in 2022, that at least 4,500 schools across the country were closed in terms of their physical building for at least a day or more. And this is scary as it as we look at how the rest of 2022 is really going to ride out. And so when it comes to these labor shortages in terms of these lack of teachers, staffing, support, um, Kelly, where where are we going with this? You know, I I have to be honest, I just see it getting worse. Uh, I am constantly hearing from teachers around my district and through social media about the lack of um, desire to return next year. We have teachers who went in over winter break and closed up their classroom and left their keys on their desks. They just are feeling um, at a at a point where they cannot come into school anymore. They cannot um, they cannot do their jobs to the best of their abilities, and it doesn't really have anything to do with what's happening within the classroom with our students. We you're not going to find a teacher that doesn't say that when they shut their door, they love to do what they do with their kids. 
It has to do with all of the other things, worrying about making sure that they're safe, worrying about making sure that uh, you know all of our lesson plans are that our ducks are in a row because who knows when we're going to have to cover for another class, and making sure that um, you know our cafeteria staff and our paraprofessionals are there to help with what they need to do every day. We have districts in Arizona that are daily canceling bus routes because they don't have drivers to drive them. And my heart goes out to those parents having to try to scramble to get uh, to get their kids to school. But I also have such concern and a heavy heart for our educators and any employee of public schools right now because we are not only just dealing with our jobs, but we are also trying to deal with so much more. And and it's all new territory for all of us. So it, it's at a breaking point for a lot of teachers. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's my understanding from the things I've read that a lot of these educators have been pushed to the brink at alarming rates in large part due to money. The fact is the funding isn't there, whether it's for salary or even just for schools and teachers to have the supplies they need. But also the pay has really been stagnating for decades with teachers making almost 22% less than other workers really with comparable education levels. And at some point that is definitely gonna come to a head and it seems to be essentially coming to a head right now during the pandemic because you're also, as you've noted Kelly, going up against the fact that we have issues with potentially that could potentially threaten our health. And so being put in all of those moving pieces and parts, I see where we are, where we are. And so Anthony, how is this impacting you all? Is it also an issue in terms of the economics and also health related issues out in Michigan? There's there's a lot of that going on right now. Um, especially the health, obviously. I want to go in and I want to make sure all my students are safe. I want to make sure I remain safe. Um, my family members, my grandparents, you know, are we're all safe. Recently in Kalamazoo, where I teach, we had a student pass away this week. So not only are we worrying about the impact of being in the classroom and staying safe from COVID, we're worried about the social emotional toll that it's that is taking on, on a lot of our students. And so that on top of the already heavy load of being a teacher, that's not just a career, it's it's really just a lifestyle and a state of mind. But on on top of that load, we are worrying about all those other impacts. And you mentioned the economics of the of the matter. In Michigan, we've had a decline in enrollment in teacher prep programs in Kalamazoo where we have Western Michigan University right here in town with a teacher prep program, but no one wants to go into the field of education. And a lot of it is because of the pay, like you mentioned. I went to school to be a special ed teacher for just as long as some engineers, but I don't make the a comparable wage to engineers. And I'm getting my master's degree right now, which is more of an investment in myself and in my students. But that isn't necessarily reflected in my pay. Now, I hear a lot that teachers don't do it for the income, we do it for the outcome. And that's something that is partially true. We do do it for the outcome for our students, we do it for the benefit of our society. But at the same time, we have families that we need to support, we need to support ourselves at the same time. And from my perspective, it feels like we're being taken advantage of, our kindness is being taken advantage of because society knows that if you go into the teaching profession, you're not going to, you're not gonna put yourself first, you put your students first, you put the other, the family and the community first. And it it's, makes it very difficult. Absolutely, and I'm sure it feels to some extent exploitative because it 
kind of is. The fact is that you know saying that oh you know teachers do it for the kids, yet you have bills to pay, you have to eat as well. And if people really wanted to value our youth and raising up the next generation, they'd be investing in their education. So why wouldn't you pay teachers that quality amount that they deserve to be paid since they are essentially being responsible for the next generation of individuals. And on that similar subject, I know there has been a lot of chaos with schools and parents with this critical race theory nonsense and whatnot and trying to regulate whatever your curriculum is. And I'm sure that's adding a certain level of stress because as we've seen a lot of parents being unjustifiably angry with teachers. And so Kelly, how has that impacted you in terms of your work to the extent that you find yourself facing this in Arizona? You know, we have teachers all across the state of Arizona who are afraid to go to their school board meetings, afraid to participate in the business of the school where they work because they're they're in fear of being attacked by these angry parents. And it is it is a very sad situation. And and to sit and listen to our governor's state of the state address on Monday, where he himself addressed this and said that every teacher should post every lesson, every article, every artifact, everything they use in their classroom online so that parents can look through it and make sure that everything is being done as they expect is really frightening. And it does weigh very heavy on a lot of teachers. It's it's very sad when you have a governor who says that yet did not bother during his entire state of the state address to thank teachers for basically being frontline workers in the middle of a crisis, for making sure that our students were fed and taken care of. And we served, and I'm sure that Anthony would agree, we served in many times as a counselor, as a, as a helper to the entire family throughout all of this because we care. But then to turn around and have these parents and our own governor um, make up to villainize us is, is really, uh, another breaking point for teachers to just say, I, I've had it, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. I can make more money doing something else and not have these pressures and these constant attacks. Absolutely, to essentially have people micromanaging you and looking over your shoulder, those parents, it's like if you want to be this involved, you might as well homeschool your child because as far as I'm concerned, they ain't paying you enough to deal with that kind of nonsense. And so Anthony, I you know, I know they have out in Arizona right now, the Treasury Department has essentially threatened to keep the relief funds from Arizona for using it to fight school mask rules. And so that there is a lot of issues going on with that, but I'm wondering out in Michigan right now, are you also finding that you're running into issues in terms of how your school decides to handle the pandemic as well as the curriculum? In terms of how we're handling the pandemic, our our districts, it is very inconsistent. Where I am, I'm in Southwest Michigan and how we're handling it in Southwest Michigan, how they're handling it in let's say Detroit aren't the same. In my district, we've been, we've had a mask mandate all year. Some schools have had no mask mandate. Um, so it's, we need a lot of consistency. And in terms of the funds, our governor is actually very pro-education. Um, she's doing the be- Governor Gretchen Whitmer is doing the best she can, from my opinion, to help support educators. But what we really need is the support from the communities um, in, in everything that we do, including choosing the curriculum and giving our students an accurate 
depiction of our of our history and how the world sits right now. Yes, that is such an incredibly, just a very strong point and an important one in terms of people getting the education they need. And also it's so incredibly important that you teachers are provided with the support, whether it's economic as well as just being supported in your communities. And so I wanna thank you both for all of the work you do and for continuing to stand up for what's right. Thank you again for joining us, Kelly Fisher, as well as Anthony Barnes. You are a credit to your profession and we appreciate everything you do as teachers. Thank Thank you. you.